0: This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Good morning and thank you. Good morning, thank you us. And thank you especially for an opportunity to share I'm going to do so briefly as a start by talking about what God has been doing in my life. It's uh, been a journey that I wouldn't have chosen, but it's one that some of you are aware of to some extent. In May 2019, I was diagnosed with cancer in my lungs. Um, The right lung had the the biggest growth that had spread to the left lung. My liver was infected my lymph glands were infected, and the vertebrae were infected. <clears throat> it's a, a situation that when that happens, it sort of creates a whole new reality that one doesn't anticipate and one struggles to get to, to grips with. Part of doing that was to speak to the oncologist who is treating me and one of the first questions I asked her was, well, how long before this goes into remission? And her answer was, we can't heal you. What happens after that is that they take some tissue from your, your body and they analyze it. And they do that in order to check whether the genes of the body mutate. <clears throat> they change as it interacts with cancer. And um, it takes some time, but I was preparing for chemotherapy treatment when Dr. Hitchen phoned me to say, I have really good news for you. And the good news was that the genes in my body had mutated. And it has a particular name which means nothing to me. I don't know if it will mean something to you. But um, the result of that was that I could be treated differently. So when I got to her um, after she would phoned me I said to her, well why is this good news? And her answer was again very simply, we can't heal you. And uh, as I talk about it, it's sort of overwhelms me at how good God is because I had a scan. I have a scan of the chest and sort of lower abdomen area of my body. And the scan that took place two weeks ago gave the following feedback. My liver is completely clear. Lymph lymph glands are completely clear. My vertebra is completely clear. In my right lung... (laughs) In, in the right lung, the tumour that was about 4.8 centimetres big and 3.5 deep um, is now one centimetre by one centimetre. And <clears throat> the lesions, the places where there are cancer in the lung, was um, far smaller, and the lesions far fewer, and the lesions are far smaller. There is no way to explain this because medically, you have heard what I said. And I don't say that, by the way, to try and point fingers at the medical profession. I have the highest regard for them. They are professional, wonderful people. But it reinforces that God is the healer. And he presides over life, even though it leaves us with all sorts of questions. I do want to say one thing about cancer. You know, sometimes we talk or we hear people talking of cancer with the big C. And it's as if it creates fear and as if we almost live in awe of this thing that could come into our lives. Cancer is nothing more than a very simple process that goes wrong. I cut my finger two days ago, trying to open a, a few days ago, trying to open a bag of um, briquettes for a briar, and I caught it with a knife. It's one of those sharp knives, and it created a quite a hole in my finger. It's gone. you know why? Because God designs our bodies to heal. What happens is, The cells where it's been cut multiply, and as they multiply, they close up again. And cancer is exactly that. It's the cell multiplication process, which is essential for life, that goes wrong. Instead of stopping where it should stop because the need for cell growth has ended, instead of stopping, it carries on multiplication. And so what happens is the tumors develop, and that's all the cancer is. It's not... To be feared. God is greater. And I don't say that because I have any guarantee of my life. One lives one day at a time. But certainly in the knowledge of who God is. Part of wrestling through this new reality was um, sending messages and talking uh, to a lot of people. It's in 2019. There wasn't COVID. So I was very privileged to be able to be in contact with a number of people. And on the 24th of May, I sent the following WhatsApp message quite late at night <clears throat> to David Hunter. He used to lead the United Church, and he's a very good friend of mine. I wrote the following. And this is to David Hunter. I want to respond to cancer without fear and live in a way that is full of life. I want to fight it in every way I can. Cancer isn't worthy of recognition by me being fearful fearful of death, or of sickness, or of the road ahead. But this might sound a bit triumphalist, I said to him, and what's up, does it? It's not that I expect the road ahead to be easy. It won't be, and I know that. But life is sustained by love, and fear eliminates the essence of what life is about. While life full of love is also full of worship and hope, and kindness and concern for other people and love of God and of those around me the list is long. I don't want to sound idealistic but I want to live loving God and others as nothing with meaning in life comes without effort and sometimes with pain. I know it is late I said and I must stop rambling but there is a strange sense I have of recognizing this journey as a privilege and that the choices I make are key. And in my heart of heart, my choice is to give my life to God and to others while I still have life to give. Although I wrote that on the 24th of May, 2019, it wasn't as if it was from there, anything but it. And there were ups and downs. It so sort of worked out, too, that my sister, who was 11 years older than I, was diagnosed with exactly the same cancer type in the same spot in the lung two months before me. And we spent quite a lot of time together. And Helen, who passed away at the end of last year, spent some time talking with me about the fact that once she had been diagnosed with cancer, she sort of asked questions like, what have I done that God is causing this? She and I, by the, by the way, became Christians at the same time. We responded to God's love in about 1973. I was a pupil at Union High and Graffinette. And even though I said to her, well, God's nature isn't to come and punish us, but why would he punish us when Jesus has carried the full weight of our sin on the cross? It's not necessary for us to be punished. We share God's righteousness because God has carried our sin. In spite of those questions which I spoke with her about at that stage, unaware that I was carrying exactly the same disease that she was, when my turn came, it challenged me. It didn't challenge me in what I believe, but it certainly challenged me as who I was. And so what I want to do this morning is to go through faith, Because at the heart of what pleases God, we read, of all the benefits and all the the trials and the challenges of living as a Christian, the only way of, in a sense, tapping into God's heart is through faith. And so will you turn with me to John chapter 20, and we're going to read the first 18 verses. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, "They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him." Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief, or the cloth, that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed, For as yet, they didn't know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went home, sorry, went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there and didn't know that it was him. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I, will ta- and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have yet to, be as- to, to ascend to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. I want to say three things about faith. And certainly the first thing was very pertinent for me as I grappled with this new reality of cancer in my life. And in a sense Mary was grappling too. I want to say to you it's impossible Secondly, that it is rational. And thirdly, that it is very personal. And I'm using, just so that you're aware, if you've um, read Tim Keller's work, um, I'm using some of his material in communicating what I am this morning because I found that really very helpful. Now what do I mean by saying it's impossible? Surely Christian faith is possible. Yes, it is. But what I mean is that We can't really come to saving faith on our own. We need help from somewhere. Our faith doesn't come about by simply putting up our hand and coming forward for ministry as we do in Shofar Church, and I love that. I love the willingness for people to respond to God by doing something about it. But you know, that doesn't mean that I make the choice. Sometimes we think of our salvation as having started on the day that I accept Jesus, and it is an important day. But what has God done before that day is the question. And so why do we look at this particular passage and say that faith is impossible unless God helps? Well, for the following reason. Consider the following. That Jesus had spent, and in the next slide we'll see that, considerable effort teaching his disciples that he would be crucified and that he would be he would die and he would rise again on the third day look at the three scriptures that are available in mark 8:31 mark 9:31 and mark 10:33 and 34 and i'm going to read the last one to you where jesus says behold we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise. Jesus said this repeatedly. He reminded his disciples and taught them that he was to undergo a really tough well, can one even say tough, an absolutely life. Demeaning experience of crucifixion and then of rising. That didn't seem to cross Mary's mind. It didn't seem to cross Simon Peter's mind or John's mind either. What did they do? They said, "Oh, somebody's stolen the body. And they were distraught because they were already so bung and in their homes hiding from the Jews out of fear of them. It didn't cross their mind at all that what had happened was what Jesus had taught them had happened. What does that say to us? Well, I think, and it meant so much to me when I realized, I think it means that the prejudice, the opinions, the experience of life, and all else that we have, the shapes, the way we think, the way we are, actually blinds us from seeing who God is. And that salvation doesn't depend on me putting up my hand. That's essential, me responding, but actually it It happens because God is so gracious. He helps us to be reborn. He helps to give us faith. In the next slide are a number of scriptures where this point is borne out. And the one that really made such a difference in my life was realizing John 1, 12 and 13. To all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Who believe, sorry, who were not born of... um, Sorry, could you do the next slide, please? That <laughs> I don't have to try and remember the scripture. Whoever's doing the slides. Ah, no, it's, it's never. Thank you. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not, res- not because of the will of man, or because of blood, or because... There's one more. Whatever. But they are born of God. Do you realize that you are here today if you are here as a Christian believing and responding in worship to God because God has birthed you? Or do you think that your faith is the result of the choices you made? This point from John 20 that we've read bears it out that in spite of Jesus' teaching repeatedly he would die and be resurrected, people couldn't see it. And you know we know better than they. We couldn't see Jesus either. But for the work that God does because he's gracious and loves us. When I was battling with the new reality of my life, the object of my faith, if I could call God an object and forgive me, but what I mean, that which I was focusing on gave me little concern. What did give me concern was the subject, me. And when I started realizing that it was actually God who'd started the work in me, you know what it did? all the pressure left me. God starts the work in us. It's not our decision. We're only able to make the decision because God is gracious and he loves us and he wants to come to reveal himself to us. What a wonderful, wonderful relief. It's impossible for us to have faith without the work of God. That doesn't mean he takes over our minds and makes our decision for us. But that's another long debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, which I'm not going to get into. The second point that is relevant from this particular passage is that faith is rational. Now, I did say earlier that you can't reach saving faith simply by your mind. And perhaps if you are here today because, well, the evidence makes you believe that, well, you think Jesus actually did live? Perhaps he's a good man, and perhaps that's why he is important to you. Faith is much more than rational thought, and it certainly isn't just the product of what we think. That's what the first point is all about, about the fact that we can't have faith without God's work. How we see, though, the rational thought applicable to what we see in the passage we read from John is based on the following. We need to go back to say, well, in the time of Jesus, when we read, uh, which was recorded as we read from John 20, the role of women was one that sadly was really almost a non-entity. But I don't know if you were, but that women's, testimony was not admissible in court. It was not deemed to be reliable, and witnesses could not be women. Now, it is interesting that if this particular account out of John that we read, if it were fake, if it were not true, surely John would not have made a woman to be the first witness Why would you do that if you're trying to convince people to to believe your story that Jesus rose from the dead? You wouldn't put a woman in as the first witness because everybody would disbelieve you. Because women had no right. Their voice was not able to be heard. But you know, not only did John do that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke did as well. All of them recorded that Mary Magdalene was the first person to see that the tomb was empty. It wasn't just John. And you know what? There is only one reason for that and that is that it's true. They wouldn't have said a woman was the first witness if they wanted people to believe story. They wouldn't have done it. You see, people today in our society believe all sorts of things they choose all sorts of things that they choose to believe. They get passionate about all sorts of things. Christianity says, your passion is fine, etc., etc., but believe in Jesus, not because it's passionate or good or whatever. Believe because it is true. You know, there is so much evidence that convinces me, and really, I'm sure, could, would convince any reasonable person that Jesus lived that he died and that he rose again. I don't know if you've done any reading in apologetics because remember what we are talking about is Christianity is rational. It's not less than our mind's ability to think. And there is so much, so much evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. consider the matter of, well, what happened to the body? If the Jewish authorities, as they were, were gunning for the people saying that Jesus rose from the dead. All they had to do, had they stolen the body, was to produce it. And if it was the people of Jesus, his friends who stole the body, why would they, as a group of hundreds, all say the same thing? You cannot lie as a group together. Eventually, somebody breaks rank. That's why there are state witnesses in our court cases. Somebody breaks rank. But if it's the truth then it is possible that 400, 600, more thousands of people all say the same thing. In this town, we have the blessing of university with people who are wonderful scholars. It amazes me that the overwhelming evidence of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, wherein he triumphed over sin and said to cancer and to death, that that evidence does not convince more people. Christianity is rational. It is all a lot more than just rational, but it doesn't mean you kiss your brains goodbye when you become a Christian. The third thing I want to say from this passage from John, which I think is probably the deepest one and the one really that speaks most to us is that it's personal. And I want us just to read the last seven or eight verses in the next slide. Next one, please. There we go. Mary, but Mary. This is after Simon Peter and John had come to see the empty tomb, and they went back to their own homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped on and looked into the tomb, and saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. At that stage, Jesus had gone missing. She was looking for a dead Jesus. Now, when she had said this, she turned and saw Jesus standing there and didn't know that it was him. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she repeats her story. and She says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will, I will take him away. She is still looking for the body of Jesus. She hasn't been able to see it. And we wouldn't either be able to see Jesus but for the love of God that reveals him to us. And then he says, Mary. We needn't go further than that. You know, in his words Mary, you can almost touch the compassion and the sense of understanding the the understanding that says, I don't condemn you for not seeing it but here I am, right in front of you she was looking for a Jesus who was far far less significant than the one who stood in front of her, and you know I don't know who you in your minds think of when you think of Jesus. But Paul writes in Ephesians 3.20, he says, Now unto him who is able to do far more than you can ask or think, our ability to speak and to think is limited when we compare it to the glory of who God is. We truly serve an amazing God. But you know, by saying Mary with so much compassion, it's not just that Jesus personally spoke to Mary. He also actually says something to us. He could have arranged for a man to be there. He could have arranged it, for it to be Simon Peter. Somebody with on sin and he But he chose Mary. And okay, he didn't choose it, but that's the way he worked out. And I don't know how God organizes things like that. But the point is... It was somebody who wasn't a pillar of the community. She seems to have been a prostitute. It wasn't a big leader. It was a follower. And so you know what that does for us. It means you don't have to come with some other pedigree, with a track record, with a sense of, I've made it. Or perhaps in this town, my qualification is quite good. Perhaps I have a good position. Perhaps my financial position is really not too bad. You don't have to worry about those things because they're irrelevant to God. He's interested in your heart. And it means that by Mary coming to be the first Christian, and she was, she had an encounter with Jesus. She encountered the risen Lord in a way that, gosh, it must have been whew, actually to see Jesus and realize that it was him who had got up from the dead. you But you know what we say, that Christians are people with a certain belief and faith, but they have an encounter with Jesus, and then they have a mission to be able to go and speak to others. That was the first Christian, and that was Mary, a woman without any rights, without the ability even to speak in court at her day. If you believe that Jesus was a good teacher, and you pray occasionally, thinking that he might answer your questions, your, your requests, you actually haven't made your life available to him, because when we submit our lives to God, we hand them over. We give our rights away to God. And that's one of the reasons, too, by the way, by the way, why it's not so easy for people just to come to faith without God's help. Because if we were to come to faith and willingly give away our rights, well, that's not so easy to do. And so in summary, I thank God that my salvation, even if it did start 47 years ago, is actually not something that I have to watch over as much as he does. He started it. I am safe in the care of my father. And so are you. God will not abandon you. Don't fear of losing, don't fear losing your salvation. Why? Because God started it in you. Do you think he's just going to drop you? I can't speak on his behalf, but the way Jesus acted and the way I read the Bible suggests to me that he doesn't go around giving cancer to people, punishing people when his son has borne the weight of our And so I want to remind you and leave you with the fact that your salvation started because God loved you. Don't doubt what he's doing. Secondly, go and discover the evidence. It's wonderful. I have a book in the car that I thought it might bring. It's an old classic. It was published in 1930. It says, Who Moved the Stone? It's a good title to put to a book, except the guy who wrote it who was a lawyer intended to write a different book. He was an Anglican, but when they said the creed, which was basically the statement of faith, when it said, and the third day he rose from the dead, he shut his mouth. He refused to say it, because as a lawyer, he was convinced Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. And so he set out to write a book to prove that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. And he wrote a new one, because simply by looking at the word of God, the Bible, he became absolutely convinced that Jesus must have risen from the dead. If the basis of your faith isn't the certainty that Jesus has done so much more that you can even ask or think, come study the word. Let it influence you. Let it change your life, because it does. And lastly, I don't know if you sit quietly before God, but he's told me repeatedly to do that. And you know, he talks to us. This might sound a bit soppy. If it does, forgive me. But in the whole process of working through what it meant to be told that I'd be dying of cancer, you sort of almost want to know, well, am I okay? And God put in my mind words to the effect of, do you know how much I love you? It's overwhelming even just to talk about it. Has he said to you whether he loves you? He is a father. One of the most wonderful roles I have is to be a father and a granddad. And you know how easy it is to say to my children, I love you. How much more would God want to do that with you? The personal nature of salvation means that we shouldn't go out here without having at least given ourselves the opportunity. To respond to a God who wants to so deeply and so wonderfully assure us of His love. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.